Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week's episode features Gabrielle Opals. She is the co founder of Haven Spa. And this is a super exciting interview for me because when I first moved to New York City, Haven Spa is where I went and spent all my money. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Sunabi. She is the founder of Orveda. I hope you enjoy the shows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am pleased to be sitting next to Gabrielle Opals. She is the co-founder of Haven Spa. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you. And we had a conversation before the show um, where I got to tell you that I was a Haven customer for a really, really, really long time. And I loved it there. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We need to see you again. I um, spent probably more money than I should have. <laughs> no such thing. <laughs> that time in my <laughs> life. But um, I'd make the journey from wherever I was living, which whether it was at the time, I guess, Murray Hill or Upper East Side. And I just love Mariola. She's an incredible esthetician. She's I so agree. talented. She's still with us. That's incredible. How long has she been there? Um, she has been with us since, I think, 1996, from before we even opened Haven. So a really long time. So it's super cool when I saw your name in my calendar for the podcast. I'm like, wow, this feels so full circle. Like You were my, my place to go when I first moved to the city and for many years after that. That's great. So um, let's talk about what it takes to own a spa. And you've owned several now at this point. And you have a, a co-founder, right? You have a partner? I do, yes. Audra Senkos. Audra? Mm-hmm. So um, I want to paint a picture for anyone who hasn't been to Haven. So the Haven I went to is a little bit different storefront than the one you have now. Correct. And walk through the doors on Mercer Street, walk down a few stairs, and it'd be like really quiet and calm. And there'd be several people sitting at the front desk all doing their work and doing their work quietly and privately to give everyone like a really nice experience here is the client. Um, and now that I see your face, I'm like, I totally saw your face at the front <laughs> desk. Like, this is so cool. So um, tell us, why did you start in the spa business? Honestly, it was really just something that happened. I'd gone to college. I got a degree in archaeology and didn't want to spend the rest of my life in school. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I graduated in the height of the um, recession in 1991 and got a part-time job at a salon, Diana Salon on Bleecker Street, through my business partner, who was my best friend from high school. She was working her way through college doing that. And um, about a year into it, she and I had already started talking about maybe opening our own place. Because when you're a receptionist at a small salon, you're really doing everything. And we're like, oh, we could do this on our own. So let's press pause on that thought. Why Why would you even want to? Like, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure you know how the business is running from the front desk, but why even want to own a business? Good question. We really liked it. I think that, um, I think I was kind of always destined for some kind of retail business of some kind. My, my mother told me my favorite toy as a baby was a cash register. <laughs> so I guess it was a little bit of foreshadowing. And I discovered that, while I had never even had a manicure prior to working at Diana, I really enjoyed the environment. It was very, it was, it's convivial. It's, there are diverse people who come in and with whom you work. And it's, for the most part, a lot of fun. There's a lot of stress many times, but I, I think it's, 
unlike most work environments. At, well, I can say that not really working anywhere else in a really long time. <laughs> so you're a year out of college. You've worked in a salon for a year. And you and your best friend from high school decide, we can do this. Exactly. But then... The owners of the salon at which I worked said, you know, we're going to move out of the country. Do you want to buy the salon from us? And it was kismet. And so uh, they took a note. We were able to um, give them not the full amount of money. My parents took, um, they were refinancing their house and they took out extra on the mortgage and said, we'll lend you the money for it. And so we spent the next number, I don't know how many years. We paid off our loans early to both the owners and my parents. So we were pretty excited about that. And we grew the best business pretty quickly. That's a lot of faith that your parents had in you. I have very supportive parents. They've been, uh, I think they defined unconditional love for me, and I was very lucky and very fortunate. Do you have I am. children of your own now? I do not. Audra has children. I don't. I have so a dog. would you write Audra's children a check for 50 grand or whatever <laughs> they needed to start a business at the age of 23? You know, it's a good question. Um, You know, I I think Audra would for her own children. (laughs) I don't know them as well as she does, obviously. But, yeah, I think, you know, when you, if you have, I mean, I guess some people have children who are not responsible. And we we came across a lot of ageism because first we wanted to get a loan. I mean, an actual loan from a bank. And people were very condescending. Oh, so tell me about that process. Um, Well, we were very naive. And we'd go into a bank and ask... um, for uh, to speak to a loan officer and kind of talk to them about, we didn't have a business plan. We didn't, you know, I was 23. And I, uh, people would just, uh, you know, kind of downplay, like make it very clear it wasn't going to happen. You know, I looked probably like a bohemian, you know, wearing these long flowing skirts and sounding like a 23-year-old New York girl with my really thick New York accent and that somehow I've lost somewhat. And, um... It just wasn't a possibility. And we, we went to the small business something or other. I don't even know what it's called anymore. And it was full of old men who were very condescending to young girls. And uh, it was kind of, we really didn't have any money because we were 23. And uh, we kind of looked out. Um, Audra's parents also gave some money. And so um, we just really were very fortunate that we had access to funds to put money down because I don't think the owners would have allowed us to put the whole thing on note, you know, as a loan. What does it mean on note? Uh, You know, promissory notes. So you still owe us, you know, you borrowed, you know, let's say the cost of the salon is $100,000. You gave us 50 and then you signed the, we signed the, we signed these pieces of paper that said for each payment, we, you know, we're going to, and every time we gave them the payment, payment, they would give us the piece of paper that said that we paid them that amount. So mm-hmm. there was proof that we were paying off the loan. Mm-hmm. And you paid off your loans to them and your families quicker yes. than you thought. Yes. And how did that happen? Um, well, we grew the business and Audra and I really prioritized no debt. We didn't want any debt. We didn't want to be, um, well, we had debt to people who I think were supportive of us. We just, neither one of us wanted to be in that position for very long. And we both have a very, we have a very similar sense of, uh, similar money sense in terms of prioritizing kind of other things before ourselves. (laughs) You know, we paid ourselves very little to start so that we could invest in the business. We could pay off our loans early. We could 
you know, buy things for the salon that it didn't have, it didn't have because it was really bare bones and make improvements. One of the first things we did um, was completely um, redecorate because it was this really dated, I don't know if you remember from like the early 80s, um, it was this really dated wallpaper that had green leaves and vines on it and matching chintz, well, sort of matching chintz pillows and you know, seat cushions, and it was heinous. (laughs) And we also lucked out because Audra's boyfriend at the time was a professional decorative painter. So we got an incredible amount of painting done for next to nothing, and he did, like, textured wall technique with, you know, um, you know, special painting, you know, like, I don't even know what it's called, but it's, it was quite a difference. And, you know, we we ourselves reupholstered all the furniture and uh, just kind of gave it a whole new look. And I think that that sent a message to clients that, you know, this place wasn't some frumpy little West Village hole in the wall. And it still was a little bit, definitely mom and pop. But it, it, it we, we grew it slowly and surely and with a lot of hard work and sweat and tears and that sort of thing. And this idea of um, being so focused on being responsible spenders and responsible loan payers. Um, this is happening as your friends and your cohort are, like, not spending responsibly, right? Like, the friends around you, I'm sure, were not taking Many. on that type of responsibility. Many. And I, I think, you know, there are people who are raised to be, you know, um, sensible with money, and there are people who are not. I know a lot of people to this day who are, you know— my age or older who just can't seem to get it together. You know, they live paycheck to paycheck even though they're making really nice money. And I think to myself, you know, you could really accomplish so much more personally, not just professionally, if you could just kind of scale back on the fancy bags or, you know, the the, the constant going out to dinner. And not that you shouldn't enjoy those things. I think you kind of have to have a balance Mm -hmm. of... You know, I mean, you can't take it with you, right? So, but you also have to save for that rainy day. Right. And that's that's definitely our philosophy. So how many years was it where you had the just only the Diana salon? So we had that just for a few years. We bought that in 1993. And um, within a few years, we had, we were really building our clientele. And we had, we were all the way in the far west village on Bleecker and West 11th. We had a lot of clients say to us, oh, I really wish you guys had something on the east side. And after a few years of that, we started looking. Everywhere from probably, I guess, because we wound up in Soho, probably about from Soho all the way up to the, the Upper East Side. Like, pretty much if it was on the east side, we were looking. And um, we came across uh, the, the space at 150 Mercer, and that was not, I mean, it's east. It's not like way far east, but it's definitely east of where we were. And it, the the space really resonated with us. It was it was way before, not way before, but it was, I guess, on the cusp of when Soho was really kind of coming to um, its height or it's the beginning of its growth, let's say that. And it, um, it was a charming space. It had been, I think, before we took over, it was like a hat factory and it was this, or they were, the factory sounds so industrial and giant. It wasn't that big. It was this big, long, open um, space that was what's called below grade. You go down these few stairs. It's not like you're going into a basement per se. It's like almost like a reverse mezzanine. And 
Uh, I don't remember how many square feet it was, about 3,000-ish. And it was, you know, I mean, Diana was 700 or 800 square feet. It was quite the the jump for us. And day spas were also kind of on the verge of, or were just coming about. There was Noelle DiCaprio's place in Connecticut. She was like the, the, fa- the, the godmother of spa. And um, I'm not even sure, maybe Bliss had just opened, or I don't know if it was still Let's Face It, that Marcia Kilgore had started. And so there really weren't, it wasn't the buzzword yet, spa, but we had been reading a lot about it and we thought, you know, we want to do what we were doing but add more services like massage and have more choices in facials because Diana was really tiny and our facial room was tiny. (laughs) So this is so interesting because you're um, running a business with nail technicians, hairstylists, estheticians, and neither of you are any of those skills. That is correct, yes. We considered it for a while, but... You know, Audra was better at it than I was. And um, I think it just, but it wasn't really a, a particular talent of either of, our, of either of us, either of ours. We um, we just found that our, our talent was being, you know, was administrative, but also front-facing. And I think that when you work from what they call from behind the chair, it's much more difficult to manage the business end of things because you're so occupied with, your clients in your hands at the moment, and they're really important. And so I think by dividing that, we, I think, probably helped the business grow a little further, a little faster. And we were, um, we we were, and I think we continue to be somewhat careful about who we hire. I mean, you don't always succeed in hiring the best because you never really know. But um, we learned a lot over the years. I feel like while physically I, I couldn't do a facial, I know a lot about skincare. And that just comes with being really immersed in it. So what was your dream for Haven when it opened? I would say we wanted something that was similar to Eve in that it was comfortable and personally accessible, that it didn't have that corporate feel that a lot of these larger places tend to have. You know, it wasn't owned by some giant corporation. We're just two girls from Queens that opened or, or you know, we came from like basically a nail salon. Um, and we wanted that feeling of uh, being personal, personable and um, accessible and not wildly expensive, but, you know, a good value and um, a place where you want to come and hang out, like you, the way you sp- still speak about Mariola, like you really liked your connection with her, and that's really what our goal was. And I think that much of the time we achieve that. Can you know? Still, it's a real priority for us to hire people who are personable and make those connections with clients because I think that that's what distinguishes us from many places. Maybe not all. I can't speak about other places entirely, but. We're not just some uh, factory of beauty care. And when you started out, because you mentioned retail and the cash register in the beginning, um, did brands, because we've always had really incredible um, curation of products um, for sale. Um, In the beginning, was it hard to get the brands that you love to take you seriously as a a retail location for them? I wouldn't say that. No, it it was, first of all, the the landscape was very different um, 20 years ago. 20, 25 years ago, there definitely, cosmeceutical wasn't a word yet. There weren't that many skincare lines like there are now. I mean, it's it's inconceivable. <laughs> I mean, it's infinite, right, at this point. But um, we, 
we looked at a lot. You know, you're, at that point, you had the spa magazines or the beauty magazines and a couple of trade shows in New York City, and we didn't really travel for trade shows yet. And it was whoever you met there. I, our first big line, that's not true, our first line of any note, I would say, was a, a line called Osh, and it was spelled O-J-A, and it was an Ayurvedic line. And it was really interesting and very unique. And it was very different from, you know, the creamy or the gel cleanser and the toner. And, like, the cleanser were these, like, crushed herbs, and you mixed it with a little bit of water and, you know, washed your face with that. And I don't remember even. Maybe it was an oil instead of a cream moisturizer. It was very natural and Ayurvedic. And some people responded really well to it, not just um, physically, but they liked the idea of it. The difficulty behind it for us was we're not really a holistic kind of place. And um, a lot of the clients that we tend to get aren't crunchy granola. Some are, but the ones that we had at the time were not. And so they would look at this little pile of powdered herbs and say, what am I supposed to do with this? And so um, it, it it didn't quite click for us ultimately. So our first big line really was Yonka. And uh, we, we wanted to open Haven with Yonka. And so we took them on about a year earlier by taking them into Eve. And they so had, Eve is Diane renamed. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. And um, what was great is that uh, they had fantastic training. They still do. And their national headquarters are in New Jersey. And so um, they were, they're were they very supportive to new new accounts. And they were very helpful. There was no question. We, I don't think we've ever run into a company that thought we weren't good enough. Or, you know, I think I just came across a company, and I can't remember the name, that said that uh, – they weren't expanding their portfolio of clients at the time. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that was code for something or if they really weren't. <laughs> um, but, for, you know, at this point, you know, finding products for us always, since what we liked about Yonka is that there was still a natural basis to it. It was based on essential oils. It had been around for a really long time. And um, the products are really great. And that's kind of what we use as our our baseline still is that we want effective products. We want them to work. We want to respect and understand and like the philosophy of the product line. And, um, you know, you want to like working with a company. I met um, SkinCeuticals through your retail. I met— I think um, that was our first cosmeceutical line. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved—there was a facial sunscreen. I don't remember what it was, but I, like, would put it everywhere because I just love the texture— um, I also met this California brand, made, uh, very green and clean at the time. I want to say it started with like an E, letter E or something. Epicurean? Yeah, Epicurean. Yeah, Are they, they still around? I think they're still around, but we no longer carry them. Mm-hmm. You know, clients, also in terms of what determines what we carry, sometimes clients come to us, you know, they'll tell their facialist, oh, I'm, I'm using this new product from so-and-so, and, I, you know, you guys should check it out. And we do. And then if our staff likes it, because we always – have our aesthetics team kind of take a look because if they don't like it, there's no point in us carrying it. And uh, if they like it, then um, we'll entertain it. You know, we'll, we'll check it out. And, um, you know, if clients lose interest, which they do, because there's so much coming out. Like I said, I mean, there's an infinite number of lines at this point. You know, people kind of grow bored mm-hmm. and they want something new. And that's our clients grow bored, our staff, you know, they become kind of less interested in the line and then 
you know, we know it's time to take on something new and there's a finite amount of shelf space. Right. Well, beauty is very much like the candy business, right? Like yeah. if it's like shiny and crystalline, cute, I want it. And then I'll eat a lot of Swedish fish. I'll move on to something else. <laughs> I totally understand. So um, what's the biggest pain point in running a spa your size? <sighs> um, people management. People management. You know, it's staff. Staffing, probably. It's, you know, like any business, there's a culture, you know, to any business. And I, I think even if you're small, small, and even when you're giant, there's going to be a culture that develops over time. And especially if you're a business that has been around for over two decades, like we have, like ours is, you know, there's a culture that's developed and not everybody fits in with that. And so you have some outliers and people who aren't really team players and aren't committed to the way you want things to be done. And so that's that's the biggest challenge, I think, or, you know, training. You know, some people get things really quickly and others don't. And so kind of learning how to pace um, how, how to pace education for different learning styles and people. So for um, people who are not the team players and don't fit into the culture, um, are you very surgical about making those those um, changes very quickly, or do you um, hem and haw about it? Like, what's your like? What do you feel inside when these when you see these things happening? We hem and haw. I think sometimes it's we've had people who just they come there. We they come to our place. They just want to work. They want the paycheck. They do a good job. They care about their clients. They care about the, their performance. They care about the business in that aspect, like they understand the connection of their work and our business, that it's a we, that it's not in us and them. And for them, sometimes that's okay. Like I had a nail tech a few, a number of years ago who just didn't want to be swept up into the culture of things. She just wanted to come in there. And she was great. I loved her. She was great. And she wasn't hostile. There was no conflict. There was not, none of that. She just did her own thing. And then we've had other people who are dramatic and... They just can't connect with their coworkers and the way we want to do things. They just can't get out of the space of, well, I want to do it this way rather than the haven way. And with those people, it, it takes time to, A, find out that that's really what the problem is and that we're not going to get past that. And, um, B, I, I never like firing people or letting, letting people go ever. Even in the most egregious situations, a part of me still feels really bad about it. Is that your job on the team? Uh, most of the time. Actually, not so much anymore. It depends. Um, if it's a big, if it's somebody who's been with us for more than like five minutes, um, then I'm usually involved because I've also been involved in trying to acculturate them on some level. And so I like to be a part, not, not like, but I want to be a part of that separation because I want to make sure that it's done well. And I want to make sure that it's understood why why this is happening. Um, but many times our managers or assistant managers, they're authorized to make that decision because it's like we recently had somebody um, that we let go and it was an assistant manager who, who took care of that because they received four complaints in two days. Wow. And it was somebody who had not been doing well with us and we decided, you know, this is a lost cause. So let's just move forward. And your space has grown since I've been there. Yes. You expanded and moved. We right? did. Yeah, we moved up to 250 Mercer. Mercer. And uh, to a slightly larger space, we were able to 
design it more wisely. Uh, when we first designed Haven, we really didn't know what we were doing. We had like the break room in the middle of the spa, so everybody was walking by it. And the laundry room, it was like cramped and tiny, and the rooms weren't really set up um, optimally for, you know, like some of the rooms were way too big, some of the rooms were way too small. Um, let me rephrase that. The way we redesigned Haven was that so for almost every single room, and you can perform almost any service in that room. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the old space, you were really limited. You couldn't do a facial in this room, or you couldn't do a massage in that room. You couldn't do waxing in that room. So now you could do anything except a you know a wet body service service where we're doing a body scrub and then we hose you down. Right. You can only do that in the rooms that we have the shower in. Right, so that thoughtful design makes it easier to book and um, kind of evolve what's a big waxing day versus a big facial day. You don't have exactly. these, like, these um, jam-ups. Exactly, and so uh, we'll decide in staffing, like, for example, on our really busy massage days, I want to make sure that we have 13 rooms, that I only have 13 people who are going to be using those rooms. So do I want to have seven estheticians and six massage therapists or you know, seven and the other way around or whatever. I just have to make sure that if more people want massage, that I have more massage therapists on and vice versa. And then, you know, at the same time, I don't really have to worry that do I have enough rooms that we can do massage in or do I have enough rooms I can do facials in. So you've moved into a space. You've obviously invested in the move and the redesign. Um, let's talk about marketing a spa. So um, part of me, because I run Beast Beauty, the podcast is my side hustle, but part of me like looks at local businesses like yours and I like dream of marketing a local business because it's like very specific who your target is, right? Mm -hmm. It's not sort of like everyone in the world like we do for our other clients. It's very specific. So I have this romantic notion of marketing a local business that my guess is you're going to sweep away and say it's not that romantic. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it take to market a business, continue to have it grow and prosper after 20 years in New York City? It takes a lot. I feel like it takes a lot more targeting and, and a lot more um, specific—I just tried this word—specificity <laughs> in terms of— um, in terms of targeting that that client base that we want. Um, for us, we do get a lot of tourists because of the nature of the business. They come to New York, they, you know, they want to go to the theater, they want to get a spa treatment. It seems to be kind of par for the course now. And that's great. We love having tourists at our spa, but that's kind of mainly on the weekends. And we, you know, we also really like local people. And so... There are people who live in apartment buildings, but especially in NoHo, where we are now, and in Soho, there are a lot of offices or small businesses or retail shops. And so we've, um, in the last few years, we've reached out to a lot of those businesses that A, didn't know we were there, or B, um, maybe one person was coming to us or something like that and just kind of saying, hey, here we are, and, you know, why don't you come on in, and, you know, we can support each other, and we'll do um, we'll do um, various uh, campaigns with each other. We just did something with Mistisa and um, we, it was an eyeglass company, I don't remember the name of it, where we went in and gave eye treatments that we do to their clients. You know, if they bought, you know, X number of dollars in, eye, in, in a prescription, then we would give them an eye treatment on the spot and that kind of thing. And um, do you see those types of activations making an impact? 
We do. Um, I, we just did, we did something with WeWork and Tomskin, Tom, Tomkin Studios and, you know, a lot of it is just getting the word out there. You know, there are so many spas and salons out there and we are about engagement. We are about being, you know, personalization and being accessible and friendly and we want people to know that we're not just any other place, that we want you to come in because we want to work with you in terms of making your life more comfortable and prettier. So um, how big a role does social media play for your um, awareness um, building? We, a lot more than it used to, obviously. I We really don't do anything on Facebook. Um, we have a Facebook page, but I and I can't remember now if my Instagram, the Instagram account links to it. I'll have to check on that, actually. But we do mainly Instagram, I would say. Um, and we do trade with certain people when they come in um, for... Um, you know, like bloggers will come in and they'll try a new service and then they'll post a, a story and or, a, you know, just a general post and tag us. And that's always great. So influencer marketing is a part of your strategy or is that just sort of a, a by accident? It's part of our strategy. We work with a PR um, person. Her name is Jeanette Zeno and she is, uh, she facilitates a lot of that for us. Because mm-hmm. that would be, I think, that's not really one of my specialties. And right. So. I'm getting the feeling that if Jeanette didn't do it, you wouldn't do it. Um, for some things, it's not true. It is collaborative. Um, I know that with our neighborhood reach out, that was definitely something that um, we worked together with her on. I was, you know, I gave her a list of companies that I thought would be good, and she would reach out. She does reach out to them, and or she'll say, "Well, what about this company?" And I really said, I, I never really say no to that kind of yeah. stuff. So, but she comes to us many times with ideas, and we also say, "Well, we want to do," you know. But anytime we introduce a new service, we kind of run it by her, like, "What do you think if we do something like this?" and I don't know if she's ever said, no, don't do that. (laughs) I'm sure it's the PR that got me to your space originally so many years ago. I don't know how I would have heard about it otherwise. It's possible. We didn't have social media back then. No, and we didn't do any advertisement. We That's always been the way we did things was working with a PR company. We Our first company that we worked with was uh, Siren. And um, we – it's just something – I mean – Every once in a while, we would do some kind of print advertisement, and I can't remember the last time we did something like that. I, it seems antiquated at this point. Mm-hmm. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> so what's your goal for the next 10 years of Haven? What, what are you hoping um, that Ho- Haven does or creates? I think um, staying current in terms of um, not so much trendy, but maybe trending services that are effective. Um and continuing to innovate um, with services, you know, like we've added a number of specialty massages that are entire, entirely ours and not inspired by um, anything other than a conversation amongst the management team and massage therapists. And I think building our, you know, continuing to build your client, our clientele since there's always, you know, people moving away or that kind of thing. And I I don't really see us opening another location. It's something that I'm pretty comfortable with the way we're running things now. And um, I think, I don't want to say this, maintaining the status quo. I think that Haven has a lot of room for growth. Um, I think that, you know, you mentioned our retail area being curated. I feel like that's always a work in progress. And I'm always excited about adding new and exciting things to that and working on that. So, we have a lot of listeners who are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial, so maybe they're in a 
job or that they don't love it and they dream of doing something like what you've done with your partner. Like, you know, they, they fantasize about the opportunity to own their own place, whether it's a spa or a hair salon or nail technician salon. So, um, you know, what would you say to that person who's dreaming about you know, making this dream happen for themselves? It's a lot more work than you think it is. <laughs> it's not just, I, I sometimes get the feeling when people like, you know, when I interview somebody and, you know, and I ask them the same question, like, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years? And they're like, oh, I'm going to own my own place. Um, I think to myself, I don't think you understand what's involved. It's not just, a lot of times I think people think they're getting a, bitter, a, a much bigger piece of the pie mm-hmm. by doing that. And I think that that's not the case when you go You mean from, financially? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, it can be. And there's a lot of potential for that. But there's so much more. It's not just, you know, you get more clients or you can charge what you want for your services and use whatever products you want so your margin can be better or something like that. It's about marketing. It's about who are your front-facing people and you know, client interaction and managing other people. Are you going to be a single booth, so to speak? Or are you just going to work for yourself out of, um, you know, another salon and just kind of do a booth rental? Or are you going to open an actual standalone place? And what's involved in that? The contractors you're going to have to hire, the construction, the never-ending water problems. <laughs> um, there's always, you know, the the heating ventilation systems. And, you know, there's a million things to think of, cash flow, and what do you do during the slower months? What do you do with all that excess money during the busy months? You know, are you going to take it home and line your pockets, or are you going to actually save for that rainy day, or, you know, find a find a happy medium? And I think that it's not impossible. I think you should dream. I think you should try to achieve your dreams, but I think you have to take a really hard look at what's involved. I, I don't want to sound like the way the people um, <laughs> did when I first started, you know, the ones who in a very condescending manner would like, you know, you need an accountant, right? You know, um, I understood the sentiment, you know, there's just more to this than you think. But uh, I definitely don't think you shouldn't try because it's difficult. It's just understand that it's difficult. You do need an accountant. <laughs> um, you do have to pay your taxes. And, um, you know, the state is coming up with more and more regulations all the time, which isn't entirely bad. I mean, you want to protect clients. You want to make sure that people understand um, the risks involved in performing certain services. There was that expose a number of years ago on nail technicians in the city. And, you know, fundamentally, my issue with that article specifically was the product they were referring to is illegal to begin with. So, um you know, if you're, the salon that you're running is using an illegal product, of course you're going to have problems. And why would you want to expose yourself to that? I mean, we are very careful about the products that we use in our salon because I don't want to breathe that stuff in. I don't want my staff to be injured. I don't want them to breathe it in. The client, she's not at a risk. You're in there for 30 minutes. Um, but the staff is when you use, you know, some kind of noxious chemical on, you know, on your nails, or it's really more of the risk is nails, nail services. But um, like we've always used cornstarch in the treatment rooms for our waxing rather than regular baby powder because cornstarch is better for you than talcum powder. And, um, you know, it's protection for the staff. You know, I don't like using a lot of aromatherapy products in the treatment room for the massage therapist because they're, that means they're exposed to essential oils all day long. That's not really great for them. So we kind of mix it up. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. It's so great to walk down memory lane of my Haven experience and to hear what you've been up to. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Gabrielle. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.